Um, Hebrews chapter 13. I want you to know this passage, I, I hope I can communicate this this passage of scripture as much as it has meant to me. This is one of those passages that when you see the totality of the way Hebrews uh, works itself together and you get to this passage, there is a paradigm shift that happens within your mind and the way that you live for Jesus. This is one of those passages for me going back in it, meditating on it this week, just delighting in it so much. I became a blubbering mess and thinking about how uh, this, this thought in scripture just impacted my life. And it really compares and contrasts for us and knowing what Jesus calls us to, the idea of living for his kingdom in the gospel against the thought of religious mentality and, and, and the freedom that really Jesus gives us in our lives. The book of Hebrews, I know guys, I've said this to you several times, these, these first 10 chapters for me um, just just. Oh, it, it, does, it has done so much in the way that I see Jesus and, and the beauty of who he is, that God didn't come up with this plan of redemption uh, just out, out of nothing and based on a need, but rather from the, based on a need from the beginning of history. This is how he has orchestrated all things. And when you look at the Old Testament and the system of worship that the Jews had, all of it was, was a shadow of what Jesus would ultimately fulfill, showing, showing Jesus the centrality of everything in our lives and the kingdom that he represents now calling us into that kingdom to live in light of that. It's a beautiful section of scripture. And in fact, if you remember last week, the, the verse that we ended with in the very end of chapter 12, it, it says this in verse 28, therefore, since we have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by, uh, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. This word for service is often translated in some, some books as, or uh, some translations of the Bible as worship. It's a word for worship. It's living now in light of what you've learned. You belong to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. This Jesus who is king, this kingdom of which you are a part of, God has called you now in response to all of that, seeing how Jesus has orchestrated his hand of redemption for your heart. His life has been about pursuing you and offering you freedom in him. He now calls you into something in that kingdom. The way you live your life in this world, it's not for the pleasures of this world, according to you being God, according to you being king, but rather you represent a greater king whose, whose desire for you is bigger than the, the desires that you can carry for your own life. We tend to dream small. We think, of, we think of certain pleasures in life that if we just pursued them would make us happy, only to find that in pursuing those pleasures, we still end up empty. They bring temporary delight, but not the full satisfaction for which your joy, your joy was intended to discover only in God, really. And so it's saying to us in these verses, it's getting us to think about this kingdom, this purpose, now living for a life uh, bigger than just yourself. God's got greater plans than you just seeking your own personal pleasure, which only brings temporary satisfaction. You were designed for more. And so these these verses start to, to create those thoughts in our lives. How does it look now to live in light of this kingdom? If our living doesn't challenge us in our growth to die to self and live to Christ, to change, that what you truly believe should impact how you behave. Because what you ultimately believe, you obey. And there's this war that happens within all of us as to what we surrender to. The inclination with our human tendency, and it's, it's permeated in American culture, is to live life for self. Wake up tomorrow and answer the question, what makes you happy? And that is the surefire way to, to, to make sure in your life you are never happy. 
You will find temporary joy. The Bible tells you sin is fun for a season, but you are created for way, way more than just self. And so this passage starts in response to this kingdom of of what that should look like in our lives as we begin to emulate an interaction of this kingdom of God, which we are invited to belong to. We start to model a life that looks like Jesus. And so he he says to us in, in the very first verse, let love of the brethren continue. And, and so it carries this idea that, that you're already loving. That when you see the love that God has demonstrated for you and you love God in response, you embrace what Jesus has done for you on the cross and you're, God, make me new. God, save me. God, you are my king. You've come to rescue me. I've never been loved to this degree. That in my sin, you pursued me. In the darkness of my heart, God, you bring light and life. And we understand that magnitude of love that Jesus, Jesus didn't know us anything. God could have poured his wrath out on us in sin because he's holy and perfect. Yet he chose to love us. He chose to pursue us. The response of our heart should be one of worship, the one of love in return. And when we learn to love the Lord, we love what God loves and what God loves his people because God gave his life for them. And so it starts to play on this idea that when God does this work in our heart, we begin to love one another. And God then calls us in that to to keep loving each other. Don't stop. To be a community where we experience the transformation of what Jesus wants to do in us and through us together. We need one another in order to demonstrate what it calls us to in this, this verse. This verse is all about community. What we do with one another today matters in the idea of eternity and what God wants to do in each other's heart. We love. Love's an interesting word in our culture. Oftentimes we love because of what we can get. But Jesus and his love didn't, didn't give because he needed anything. He loved because at the core of his being is love. It's about giving it. Love is about giving itself away despite of what's received in return. God in triunity and perfect community experiences the love between Father, Son, and Spirit, but in, in the expression of that gives itself away. You think about the creation that God has given us. He, when he created all of this, he created it in, to serve it. That's what he did. He became flesh. He served it all. And being the king of all things, he demonstrates what love is really about. It's not sitting on your throne and pretending to just lord over things, but becoming flesh and getting beneath us and serving. That's love. In fact, at the end of Jesus' life, he says, love as I have loved you. And here we see this king and all of his authority becoming subject to humanity to the point that he, he serves them. He washes their feet in the upper room. The lowest of servants in society. And that carries in the attitude of service all the way to the cross. And the greatest expression of love that's been experienced. I don't know that this is very important for us today. But it just, just for fun, if you ever, uh, ever want to dive deeper into scripture. Um, w- the beauty of scripture is that you can really go back to original language into the Greek. And so this morning, I I even brought word pictures to teach you this. In Greek, this is actually this, this Hebrew uh, sentence that we, or this Greek sentence that we're reading is, is, is six words, but in, in Hebrew or Greek, it's only three, excuse me. In Greek, it's only three. It's minnow, Philadelphia, minnow, right? It was painful for me to put a picture of Philadelphia up there, but I thought about putting Rocky there instead, but 
so, that, so you Philadelphia fans can celebrate your Super Bowl last year. There you go. Minnow, Philadelphia, Minnow. You can go around and just impress your friends today. I live according to Minnows, Philadelphia, Minnow. Right? So, um, but, but, but it's letting love continue. And, and here's the, the really unique thing about, about this statement. Oftentimes we'll say, you know, love is a verb. It, it needs action. And that's true. Love is a verb. But in, in this Greek passage here, this word love is more than a verb. It's actually a noun. How in the world is love a noun? Uh, when, when you read on Desiring God's website, add a little, a little bit to this so it didn't confuse anybody. I thought, thought the first two words here, make love, would just sidetrack everyone. So making the word love is what we're talking about, right? Making the word love only a verb will likely make us Pharisees. Because just like you can talk uh, loving without really loving, you can act loving without really loving. That's, why, that's what Paul meant when he said, uh, if I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. 1 Corinthians 13. We can look like we're fulfilling and still not love. We said it a different way, 1 Corinthians 13, if we served and sacrificed and we were even beat up for the Lord, but it came from an act that looked loving, but not a true heart of love, what use is it? That's what Paul is saying here. When we use the word love as a noun, it's getting us to recognize that it's more than just action. There's a, a, a deeper identification to what love is. And when you think about when God is loving towards you, that action of love is at the very core of his being. It doesn't just say God loves, but in 1 John chapter 4, it tells us that God is love. His very nature in itself is loving. It's, and, and the act of love is, more, is, is an expression of the identity of who he is. And so with the church community, we're called to reflect that. To love at the core of who we are. When people think about God's community... Some of the characteristics that should identify and associate with who we are. Though we may not agree with everyone in society. We love them deeply. We're people of love. In Acts chapter 2, when the early church received the Spirit of God, it tells us that the, at the very end of chapter 2, all the things that they were doing with one another, breaking bread, spending time together, and involved in the teaching of the apostles, and, and sharing with one another, each other had need. And it said at the very end of chapter 2, and the Lord kept adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. The extent of the love in which they demonstrated with each other uh, became uh, contagious to, to the society around them. They longed for what the, the, these people in this God-centered community were experiencing with each other. And so when we think about love, we're commanded to love. And sometimes people will say, well, it doesn't feel authentic to love, so we, we got to keep it real. But what's being identified with, this, with us in this, this verse of, of love is that love is a fruit of the Spirit. And it tells us that in, in Galatians chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. That when God's Spirit indwells us, it is the natural fruit of who you are because it's at the core of your being when you belong to Jesus. You don't just do love. It's our very identity is His 
community. And therefore we demonstrate it. And so love continues to love, especially when it's difficult to love. Because biblical love is about giving itself away for the benefit of someone else, regardless of what we receive in return. It's sacrificial. It's unconditional for the well-being of others. We don't always have to wait to feel love, but to understand that God calls us to love. I mean, the back end of that, we hope that we experience the emotional joy of what love truly is. But love is deeper than an emotion. Love is deeper than an action. But externally, those things, and internally, those things can be experienced as we live out the core of our identity as God's people. Uh, We oftentimes say this because the fruit of the Spirit is love. Look, guys, anyone can love when it's easy to love. But it's God's people that love when it's difficult to love. And we've, we've shared this in the last couple of weeks. We talked about all political things that happen within our, our culture. But the power of the gospel is so good that, that, that in our lives, even when we disagree with people, all the political things that are happening, and you may choose one side of the fence or the other and all of that, but God calls us to still care about both people involved and understand that the gospel can pierce into the darkness in and, and either side of any situation. It's that powerful. And it's on that platform of pursuing people and caring about people that we find the opportunity to speak into their lives the truth that sets them free in Christ because it's the way Jesus spoke his truth into our lives by coming and serving and giving himself for us. James says, the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. He asks the question, how how can we we love in this way? And we see God's identity being compassionate, full of mercy. It says in Matthew 9 of Jesus, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And then in Philippians 2, it calls us like this as God's people. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion... Make my joy complete, God says, by being of the same spirit, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. This is what we're working together as a community. And then in response and a compassionate action, he says this, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. It's the heart of service. In Titus chapter 3, Paul reminds us this way, that we ourselves were sinful, needing rescued in Christ. And an understanding of where we were apart from Jesus that then helps us to have compassion for the need of others around us. God's doing a work in all of us. The gospel is designed to cure the darkness. What Jesus is saying in this scenario for us as his people is he's calling us into community and calling us to make ourselves uncomfortable in community for the benefit of one another. Let me say it like this. Um, If you're a part of ABC for an extended period of time and you don't have a friend or maybe you've only got one friend Can I encourage you to make this a challenge to your life? 
to invest in the community so that brotherly love can continue. I know sometimes we hear the words love and we look, sometimes we come into a church setting and we can throw out excuses, well, no one's loving me or any, you know, things like that. But, but can I tell you what this passage is saying to us individually as people? Love. Forsake yourself for just a minute and what you're not getting for, for a moment and just consider what God wants to do in the lives and the hearts of the people around you. And use yourself as that platform to encourage that believer or that person to become all that God has called them to be. So when God talks about loving in this world or or experiencing his love in this world, the greatest place that God can work is in you to impact someone else. Because you, out of all of creation, you, you are the one that's designed in his image. And being designed in his image can give the verbal expression of the glory that's due his name. Because of what he's done in your heart. You're the greatest mouthpiece to encourage someone else in the pursuit of God. Jesus uh, quoted this for us uh, as as a, uh, well, I didn't put it up here. Jesus said in, in Matthew chapter, or excuse me, John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, love one another as I have loved you. This is a new commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And others will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. When Jesus calls this a new commandment, loving people is not a new commandment. And so Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And, and others will know you are my disciples by love for one another. Now, loving is not a new commandment. But what makes this commandment new is one, we're able to now experience a more intimate relationship with God because of what he's done for us. And two, we've seen the extent of his love. He's given his life. When Jesus makes that statement, he just finished washing the feet of the disciples. That is the lowest position of a servant in Jesus' day. Love one another as I have loved you. That's a colorful statement, isn't it? Do I do that? Do I forsake myself for the benefit of the body so that we can be the light that God has called me, called us to be in this community? Love to this depth. So, so when you think kingdom mentality, it's not me first and selfishness, but it's about giving one another away. And look, guys, when, when we care for the body this way and the body learns to emulate that because of the way you're demonstrating those actions, then the body responds and we find all of our needs cared for one another, not because we're thinking about self, but because we're letting go of self for, for each other's sake. And we need community. The soul longs for for community. And so you see that in light of the gospel, I've got to move on from there. But let me just say this, guys. When we live out this way in our society, it's contagious. And a godly church living this verse out becomes a place that's messy. And sometimes we think about biblical theology and and following God. We just, we think about religiously get rid of sin and we got to all just walk around like this and perfect and everything's got to be done right. And like when you love the way Jesus loves, you understand that what Jesus has done in you is powerful and you're not afraid of the darkness and you pierce in the darkness and you go into the mess and you invite people in because that's where they find healing in Jesus. So a good godly church is a messy place. Now, we don't want to grab hold of the mess and and become a part of it, but we want to encourage in the light of Jesus because he's what transforms. And we love people where they're at because we've been there. And we, if we're honest, sometimes we're still there. 
A lot of times we're still there, right? And, and so then he, he goes on in, in verse two and he starts sharing more about this kingdom. And he says this really great verse. I, I, I love this, this passage of scripture. He says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. And here comes the crazy part. For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing. I'll, I'll talk about that second part in a second, right? But it's, it's intended to make you really nervous. Like you didn't love on somebody you're supposed to love. And it was probably an angel and you blew your only opportunity, man. That's not what it's saying. But but this is what he says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Love that, that, that way of thinking. Uh, the idea of, of hospitality in, in the New Testament is almost predominantly used for strangers. How you treat strangers. God cares about the way you treat people, passing through people just throughout your day. Hospitality to strangers. I know sometimes in church we people argue, is the church intended to reach unbelievers? So is service on Sunday supposed to be evangelistic? Or service about discipling the believers. And then people get in like arguments over that stuff. Like it's not evangelistic. It's about believers. And, and, and anyway, it goes across the board. But I want to tell you, I think it's both and. And here's why. Because if a church does what it's supposed to do, it trains its people to reach the people in this world. And so the way we do that is we help us think evangelistically on, on Sunday morning. Caring about every soul we encounter. And so we do that not only just by teaching but by the way we emulate serving out here as a church family. And so when disciples do what disciples do, we reach, we reach the lost. When you look at Jesus and his earthly ministry, when he walked in the temples, Jesus walked in the temple and, and he whipped people with whips. Out. I mean, you read angry Jesus. You ever see those in the gospels? Like, I like that. <laughs> what is this? Most of the time you see holy people in Jesus. They just walk around like this. I love you. You pat on the head. I love you. And all of a sudden he just, whoosh, you know, it's crazy Jesus. Where is that coming from? Well, when you, when you study Jesus in, in the temple during that time, uh, outside of the temple, there are the temple courts. And that's literally the place for the Gentiles. But what the Jews had done is they made it a place for trading and selling goods. So that when people gathered on Jewish holidays, what they would do is they would take all these lambs and they would jack up the price 20 times more than if they bought it out outside of the city. And they would charge people. They would just gouge them in prices. And, and it, it became such a market that Gentiles that wanted to be around this temple, they didn't even felt welcome. They were pressed out. And Jesus got ticked. He said, my house, in that passage, my house is to be called a house of prayer for the nations. And so God wants to create a space for people to come in and just learn what he's about. He's given his life for that. And so everything that we do is important. So when you think about hospitality, this has to do with the treating of strangers. And this is, this is so significant for the church that when you read qualifications for church leaders... In Titus chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes for Timothy and Titus, qualifications for leaders. He doesn't list everything. Paul's not like, I'm going to make an, ex an exhaustive list of everything a godly leader needs to have. He doesn't do that. He just, he just makes a list that gives us a general idea of what a godly leader should look like. But on both lists, both lists, you find the word hospitality. God cares about the way we treat Everyone. How, how do you treat outsiders? Those that may not be a part of your community. Now, in the early church, traveling wasn't safe. And there wasn't like, you know, the Ritz-Carlton down the street. When you traveled, oftentimes, if you could even find an inn to stay in, most of the time, it was a place that you did not want your family there. 
and you're lucky if you got out without catching fleas. Like, they, they just weren't, they weren't good places. And traveling, it was common to be robbed, so people would travel in larger groups. And so hospitality, this is talking about in the home. And so people bringing people off the streets in the home because they knew the, the other places they might have to stay if they had to travel weren't safe. And so the Christian community would take care of people. Now, I'm not saying you need to invite every stranger into your house. In fact, if you, if you read Colossians chapter 4, it says, Conduct yourselves, yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. So what it's saying is this, look... If you're thinking about hospitality and it's the middle of summer and someone's hanging out outside your house in a ski mask, don't invite them in, right? So there's wisdom to how you apply hospitality. But understand everybody you interact with in the life is an opportunity to be a light for this kingdom, for the Lord. What Jesus wants to do in them. And I think that's where the next verse comes in, the second half of this verse. For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Now, what does that mean? I will tell you, and I would even encourage you, you want to go home today, read a commentary on this. Most commentaries are going to tell you it's literally angels. Like angels are just popping up randomly, and you don't even know, right? And they're just there. And I think about that in Scripture. Like, in the Old Testament, when people encountered angels, how many people didn't realize they were encountering, encountering angels? It seems like most of the time when people encountered angels, maybe for a second they didn't realize this was an angel, but... But after a second, when you read the stories, almost everyone immediately recognized angels. So is this literally saying you don't recognize angels? Like People will look at this verse and be like, yes, it's angels. And then they'll go back to Genesis chapter 18 and they'll use a, a passage with Abraham encountering angels. And say, yes, then we see angels all the time. Everyone, you're going to have an opportunity in your life to experience angels. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. I mean, that could mean that, but I'll tell you what I think it means. I think this word angel, when it translates, literally it means messenger. And sometimes, like in Galatians chapter 4, verse 14, Paul's called an angel or a messenger. So angels don't always mean angels like you think angels with a little halo and some flapping wings. That's not, it's not always what it means in Scripture. It literally just means messenger. Sometimes God sends messengers. Sometimes we're messengers. Like sometimes they're angelic messengers, and sometimes it's humanly messengers. And I think in Hebrews, what it's saying is, as you entertain people, as you care for them, It's not that you're going to experience this angel, which it could be. It could be. You maybe experience an angel unaware, which I think is rare in Scripture. I think most people, when they encounter angels, realize that's a unique-looking thing there. What is this? You know, it's, I don't know. But, But what you could be entertaining is messengers of Christ. You could be inviting people in that are traveling through the Roman world right now, proclaiming the gospel and not even realize it, and you're helping the gospel. Or you could be inviting someone in who God has been working on their heart to share the truth of who he is. He just, using you now as that opportunity to speak into their lives. How do you treat those that don't run with your tribe, the outsiders, right? Do you even give a space? Like in Christian community sometimes, we get so ingrained in a bubble that you just kind of forget about a world out there. God's called you. God's called us to seek them. Do you know 75% of people that are asked, invited to come to church by a friend attend? Do you know most people that stay in a community stay because they were already friends with someone that was a part of a church? Like I love using the internet. I love inviting people. I love whatever form that we can get people in our doors. But do you know the most effective way? It's you. Like, if we're serious about what God wants to do in, the peop- in people in this world around us, you're the most effective way. 
And so hospitality becomes an, an important part for us in, in demonstrating a, a love uh, for the Lord. I love the, the story of Nehemiah, and I'll share this and move on, but the story of Nehemiah, uh, Nehemiah chapter 1, he lives with the king. He's got everything he needs in life. And he's outside of Jerusalem. And he asks how Jerusalem was doing because the Jews had been conquered by uh, the Babylonians. And, and, and the Medo-Persians are now in control. And Nehemiah asks how everybody back in Jerusalem is doing. And he finds out they've just been devastated. And what does Nehemiah do? It tells us Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3, 4, 5. He weeps. He cries, he fasts, he prays. His heart longs for those strangers that he hadn't met. So much so that he joins them. He leaves his luxurious life to go be a part of of theirs. And so God calls us in, in hospitality to walk into darkness and to be a light for Christ. And then, if I just move on um, from here, it it goes further, it says, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves also are in the body of Christ. Here's a real test to see how, how loving we are. How well do you love people that you have nothing to gain from? And that's what this verse is. Like you think people are being thrown in prison because of their pursuit of Jesus at this point because of the persecution in the early church and associating with those people in jail could get you in trouble. They don't have anything to gain by going there. Seems true for us, though. How do you treat people you have nothing to gain from? James calls it in James chapter 1 and verse 27, pure and undefiled religion is this, the way that you care for widows and orphans. Why? You have nothing to gain from that. They don't have anything to give you. What's an orphan going to do? But when God's love so impacts your life, you want to let that out in this world and let other people experience the love of God through you. I'm doing this because of what Jesus has done in me. God loves you. He calls you his own. He invites you to this kingdom. He makes all things new in him. And that's how we know. You you think about the grocery store clerk, the person that gave you the wrong order, The guy in front of you that just cut you off. What are you going to do? How do you treat people that you have nothing to gain from? We we used this last uh, couple years ago at men's retreat when we were talking to uh, parents or men about their children. Like you think about especially your daughter. How do you know your daughter's going to marry a good godly guy? The most important decisions you make in life. Who is your God and who will you marry? Right? And just because you find a guy that says, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, doesn't mean that they really live that out in their lives, right? So how do you know? You watch how they treat people they have nothing to gain from. How they treat the awkward kid in the circle, right? How do they they treat the ostracized individual or the common person they come in contact with? He moves on from there, and then he starts to share something interesting here. So verse 4 to 6, and I'm going to jump to these last three verses, and, and then we'll be done with it this morning. But he jumps to these next few verses, and he's going to start contrasting something very unique. Uh, verses 
4, 4 5, and 6 uh, start talking about a, a different way of looking how we, we live our lives. It seems like the author went a little bit crazy, but let me, let me reel this in for you. Let me just read the first, first part of, of, of verse 4 and half of verse 5. It says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. And then in verse 6, let me just add this. He says, For he himself said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid, what will men do to me? So verse 4 and 5, he starts talking about fornication, adultery, and greed, and then he makes an even creepier leap, and he says, in the middle of that, uh, God is watching everything that you do, right? So be loving, don't fornicate, don't be greedy, and God watches you, (laughs) In a religious mind, this is the way you'll hear it. Okay, first three verses. I really need to love. I don't need to be doing fornicate, adultery, greed, because God is watching me, right? But the hope is in between verses one to three, verse four to six, you see a gospel-oriented, kingdom-focused life. See, in order to live the way verses one to three communicate, you have got to have an identity in Jesus. You have got to love Jesus. Because without a true love for the Lord, we're going to see ourselves as God and idolize ourselves and not give ourselves away to the extent it calls us in the sacrificial love of the first three verses. And verses four to five is contrary to Jesus. And so let me just explain this to us for just a moment, what, what this passage is actually talking about. It's more of a testing now in our lives of recognizing the battle that takes place. So, so he starts off, marriage is to be held in, in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be uh, undefiled. And so what he's saying is there is this beauty of, of what marriage is, and he lists what co- is contrary to dishonoring marriage, which is fornication, adultery. But he's saying, he's saying to us here that there will be this, this war against marriage, but, but marriage is to be held in, in the highest of honor, what God has created it for. And the marriage bed is undefiled. So this is what, it, what it's saying now to us is, okay, God wants you to honor marriage. And look, and God made marriage fun because the marriage bed is undefiled. So in the terms of marriage, God created sex and sexuality. Enjoy yourselves, right? Enjoy that. No one said amen. Okay, well, that's good. But, but enjoy, I thought, you know, we're not an amen bunch, but if ever there was one, it was going to be there. So, so enjoy that, right? Sometimes we think about, we see this word fornication and adultery. I can tell you in some, some aspects of the early church, people went crazy with this, man. That's where you start seeing hermits and monks. Hermits literally mean desert dwellers. These people would try to, I wish I had time to tell you how we got the Bible in Latin for 1,100 years, but it had to do with a guy that couldn't curb his, his sexual drive because he was living as a hermit, right? But God created, God created sexuality to be enjoyed, and he wants you to enjoy that intimacy in a particular way. And so he talks about that marriage. But then he goes a little further and says, he says uh, that, that fornicators and adulterers, God will judge, and to be free from greed or the love of money. Now, I want us to know, um, sometimes we hear these words, and, and, and sometimes we have a checkered past. And we look at these words, and we feel like we're being beat over the head. But in Christ, guys, God forgives. 
God makes all things new. And so these words aren't here to just guilt you and walk out in shame, but to understand that you belong to something entirely different. This is not about, okay, now go love because you're not being loving enough and stop doing this fornicating stuff, you know? Uh, and anytime you say it in, in um, Southern accent terms, it's way better. Fornicators, right? Don't, don't be none of those, guys. Like, that's not what this is saying. This is an entirely reorientation of your entire life, the pursuit of your heart. It's not about, I was doing this, and now I'm not going to do this anymore. So I guess God will like me. It's about, this is a lifestyle that, that identifies with someone that lives life about themselves. And now you're not about that because you belong to a kingdom and a king. And he has called you into that kingdom and, and he, he makes you his own. And now you belong and rule and reign with him. Now live in that identity. It's not about what you're not doing. That's religious mentality. It's about who you are in Jesus. And and so he starts to use these words of, of fornication and adultery and greed because these are identities of where our flesh battles. Money, sex, power, fame. And so he wants us to see where our lives are oriented. Where, where is the pursuit of your heart? So if you think about what is greed exactly? Well, greed is, it's about self. It's self-focus. You, your idol is wealth and possession for your pleasure. And a greedy person loves things and uses people rather, rather than use things and loving people. And so they, they hoard things to themselves because it's all about their pleasure to the detriment of others. And here's the deceiving thing with greed is sometimes we'll do things to please ourselves, like to make ourselves feel better, right? Like I'm not greedy because when I go out to Walmart and I check out, I, I donate my remaining cents to children's primary hospital, which makes me, you know, a giving person. But that's not what it's saying with greed. Rather, what it's saying is this. How do you steward the things that you have in life? Because here, truthfully, nothing you have truly belongs to you. Nothing you own belongs to you. It's God's. God created everything in this world. He just allowed a certain amount of those things to pass through your hands. You don't own it. You steward it. And one day you'll meet him face to face, accountable for it. What did you do with the things that you own? I got to move on from there. But sexuality and, and fornication and adultery is the same thing. And we can justify that, right? But fornication and adultery, what is it about? Well, again, it's about taking the things that God created in this world and it's about your pleasure to the expense of someone else. Fornication and adultery, it's about using someone else as a tool, diminishing their image as being created in the image of God for just your personal pleasure. And when that happens in our lives, it diminishes you and the value you are because you only see yourselves in terms of sexuality and pleasure and making yourself to be God. And God created you more, more than that. It diminishes someone else in terms of adultery. It affects your relationship with your spouse and it diminishes that relationship and it hurts your relationship with the Lord. Why? Because the focus of life was you and your kingdom. And then he ends with this, and I need to close here. God's got a bigger purpose for your life than to live simply for just what pleases you. That doesn't ultimately satisfy. God cares about what you do with yourself. 
with your power, with your possessions. Because really, guys, it reveals our heart. What does our heart long for? What does our heart love? His kingdom or mine? And then in verse five and six, he says, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will men do to me? Um, this can be a creepy verse if you think in religious terms, like I need to love more and I'm not loving enough. And, and um, there's fornication, adultery, and greed, something in my, my heart wrestles with, maybe not just these things, but something I wrestle with. And now God's near me. Oh my word, what? it's like Zeus gonna strike me down, right? But th- at the end of this, this is actually a promise. This is a promise intended to encourage you. Now, sometimes we use words like greed, fornication, and adultery. We may not connect with those, but, but let me tell you, and especially in our society that's more religiously morality-driven. But let me tell you what this passage is saying. God is calling you to let go of something. And you may even define it as a good thing. Like, I'm close enough to God, or I, you know, I... I Let's just leave well enough alone. No, God isn't calling you to good things. God is calling you to God things. And sometimes we let go of the familiarity that we think is good to grab a hold of something that on the back end of that may look way more fearful to us. It may look like it's going to cost us. But it's worth it. Why? He will never leave you nor forsake you. God, I don't want to let go. God, can I just hold on to this idol? God, can I make this about me and my kingdom? God, isn't, isn't what I've got right now just good enough? Like, what, if I just step into you, there's, there's risk there. And he says to him, I'm with you. I am with you. And this can be such a fearful, faithful thing. Look what he says, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will men do with me? Guys, when I think about this in my own life, like if I'm just being honest, I, I, I do not like the spotlight. I was never a person that likes to get in front of people and say things. It's just weird that I'm even in ministry. And I think about the steps of, of my own life, like moving across the country, wife and family living dirt poor for several years and we're just slightly above that now, you know, just, and, and, and even joking about one day just having an office, you know, like, and, and then we bought this building, like this building, I, I don't know how many days I stayed up, like, let's do a week of no sleep because this feels so stressful, but what are you stepping in? God is with me. I remember very early on in my Christian life, I just read through the Bible and I got to the book of Joshua and I see Joshua leading the people of Israel. And Joshua's afraid, and God says this statement. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage, because the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. What do you live for? This kingdom of faith, this kingdom of light, or the kingdom of self? The idea that God is being with you is the hope for us in our faith to take that step in him because of what he has done. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.